0: Very special episode of the show today. Uh, the show is, of course, Coin Talk. I'm Aaron Lammer here in the Crypto Cave with Jay Kang. We're about to be joined by Safedine Amos, who is the author of the Bitcoin Standard, which means this is the final episode of our Fake Internet Money Book Club, Volume One on the Bitcoin Standard. Uh, if you haven't read the book, I totally recommend reading it. Although not necessary to following this discussion at all, we are brought to you in partnership with Medium. Medium makes it easy to find great writing about crypto. They've even got a landing page for it. It's me.dm crypto. You can also find all of our episodes at medium.com slash coin talk, including transcripts. Cool. Here's the show. Oh, and uh, my co-host uh, Jay Kang was here for most of this interview, but I uh, had to take off at the end. So when he mysteriously disappears, don't worry, he's still alive. He simply had to return to his uh, normal employment okay here we go
1: this episode of coin talk was taped tuesday june 26th at 1 p.m eastern standard time the bitcoin price index was six thousand and thirty eight dollars
0: welcome safadeen amus thank you for having me i always like to ask people who are deep into bitcoin what their initial experiences were like when did you first come across bitcoin
1: you know unfortunately i don't even remember when i don't i wish i had some funny story but the sad reality is i don't even remember it was sometime in 2009 or 2010 it was at most 2010 but i heard about it early because i was interested always in uh, austrian economics and in hard money within these circles you know there was obviously interest uh, interest in bitcoin very early on because this was a uh, an interesting experiment
2: for our listeners who might not be aware of why that was an obvious connection can you just explain why there was such a interest in the sort of i guess like Mises school or the austrian school of economics people in bitcoin at that time yeah because
1: essentially what the uh, austrians believe is that money is a creature of the market and money should be a free market just like any other market because When it is a free market, it reflects fundamental scarcity and it acts as an accurate signal of communicating information on scarcity and availability and people's preferences. So from that perspective, Austrian economists uh, like gold as money, and that's why they're uh, obsessed with gold as money. And this is why, you know, uh, Bitcoin appeals to them, because it's very similar in that regard, in that it's, uh, it's also hard money, the money whose supply is hard to increase. That's what makes uh, gold uh, money, in my opinion.
0: As a academic uh, economist yourself, are you hearing about all kinds of different schemes that try to improve upon money? Is it common to, he- to have something bit like Bitcoin, that's a new idea, come along?
1: Um, yes, and generally, uh, you know, they're usually the work of cranks. So the history of money has always been, <laughs> you know, gold is money, and then somebody comes up with a new scheme and says. Oh, look, I found something better, and this is going to be better than money. And usually, or not usually, always, it ends in disaster, and gold continues to be money. I mean, just the, the examples of things like this happening throughout history are almost endless. You know, paper money in China, paper money in many places all over the world, the, the John Law experiment in France, all of these things, you know, people come up with a new ideas, saying, well, you know, look, we have poverty and the problem of Poverty is that people don't have enough money. And that's because gold is very hard to find, and so only the rich people can afford it. So let's make a new form of money that's easier for the poor people to afford it. So let's start making pieces of paper that are backed by land in Louisiana. That was John Law's brilliant idea. And then everybody will have money and everybody will be rich. And yeah, yeah, for a few months, it looked like everybody did have money and everybody was rich. But of course, the uh, result of this was that the paper backed by empty swamp land in louisiana is very easy to produce so the value of it uh, was going to drop in the market and once it started dropping everybody wanted to sell and then the price came crashing down so there's no free lunch so this is really why you know you can understand my skepticism towards bitcoin even having heard about it in 2009 or 10. sure you know for me this was just another john Law scheme and it's not going to work and it took Really, until 2013, until I started really taking it seriously and thinking, okay, this is more than just a uh, cute uh, nerd experiment on the internet.
2: What happened that, in, like, around 2013, that got you taking it more seriously? Because you know the white paper already existed. I think that some people's sort of affiliation with the types of economics that you prefer. Had already been stated you know like uh that there had already been this connection so what happened where you're like wow this is something i should take seriously well
1: i mean a couple of things uh, essentially they had to do with just bitcoin disproving the reasons that i had for being skeptical of. so one main idea was that you know the value won't go up much because there won't be that much demand for people to hold these and so if the value goes up it'll just go down again I, I did I underestimated just how much demand there would be for this because a, it's technically complex, and b, you know, it's um, the government could shut it down or bad things could happen, and people are not going to want to hold serious money in it. so i was I was skeptical that it could rise in value. And then as it continued to rise in value a lot, you know that made me start to reconsider. But then secondly, in my mind, you know I thought the way that it would not be allowed to continue was that. It'll be associated with the dark net or with uh, terrorism or with something bad. And then they'll put up, they'll put somebody in jail for dealing with Bitcoin and that'll serve as a lesson to everybody else. You know, we, okay, we can't shut down Bitcoin, but if you end up using it, you know, we could end up sending you to Guantanamo through some sort of terrorism, uh, child pornography, whatever drugs, uh, charges. And so I thought, you know, once something like that happens, the demand for this is going to decline. And of course, you know, you have to understand that these this kind of skepticism was um, fundamentally based on a very limited understanding at that time of how Bitcoin worked. Okay, so I'd heard about how the economics of it worked, but I had no idea, really, you know, how public key cryptography actually works. I'd, I had very limited knowledge of how uh, distributed networks work, so. I had a very limited understanding of the resilience of the network and its ability to res- to resist attacks, and so I thought I wasn't one of these. There's no coin or skeptics that just wants Bitcoin to fail and is completely emotionally obsessed with it. I, w- I definitely wasn't a Rubini. I
0: mean,
1: I say <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I I thought it was it was interesting. I thought it would be cute if it worked, but you know, I I was definitely not going to put money into it. Well, I did consider it at some early points, you know, just as a sort of speculative bet. And I tried mining even actually at at a very early point. But by the time I tried mining, it was my laptop at that time couldn't really handle it. I think it was the time when, you know, CPU mining had just become inefficient and unworkable. And so, um, you know, I was interested in it, curious about it, quite skeptical that it would work. So I never really put money into it. But then in 2013, particularly after you know, all of that stuff happens, it was really after the Silk Road incident that, that I thought, okay, th- this thing might have legs. Because after the Silk Road incident, I thought, okay, yep, this is what I was talking about. Now we're going to put this guy in jail and uh, you know, throw up a bunch of people associated with Silk Road, and then everybody who has Bitcoin is going to want to get rid of them, and the price is going to plummet, and that'll be the end of Bitcoin for at least another five or 10 years or so. And so the next day after the Silk Road lose, you know, the price did fall a little bit, 20, 30 percent or something like that. But then it started rallying and it continued to increase. And the number of transactions on chain didn't decline. You can't even, I don't I don't think you can even spot Silk Road bust on transactions. So that really was a major uh, turning point. That made me think, OK, you know, when events don't go according to what you predicted, that's time to start revisiting and revising uh, your assumptions about this.
0: Yeah, something we've talked about on the show has been that I was of the same belief that you that darknet markets would ultimately discredit Bitcoin. But looking back over that history, it almost seems like darknet markets are just ahead of the curve in technology, which I guess would lead you at this point to be interested in projects like Monero that have uh, replaced Bitcoin on the dark web. As, a, as an economic uh, historian, why do you think there wasn't that kind of a crackdown where people got thrown in Guantanamo? Do you think that was a conscious decision of government?
1: I don't know uh, it's uh, i mean I think the, the thing is that you know you have to understand that government is not is not one united uh, sane entity that acts according to uh, clear objectives. It's not exactly like it exists in your civic textbook where you know these are different arms of the same uh, monster that moves aware of what it's trying to do. Unfortunately, things are much more complicated than that. You have many different government agencies. And fundamentally, the most important thing for any particular government agency is its, its own growth and its own survival and its own budget growing. So, you know, when something is, is this new and this different, there's just nowhere in the U.S. government where it seems natural and normal for them to just say, yeah, okay, we're going to handle this. It's not like it it poses a direct threat to any one particular arm of the government. At least initially, it seems like it's just an innocuous software. And particularly, I think if you if you believe in the importance of government control of over the money supply, you will not consider that this is a serious threat. Right? Like if you and I think majority of people in government or in central banks genuinely think, you know, they are doing something important for the economy. The economy would not be able to run without their central planning of the banking system and the money supply and so for them something like bitcoin that doesn't have them have central planners behind it is doomed to fail it's not going to work and so you know they likely underestimated the seriousness of it and and the impact that it would have
2: uh, one thing i was struck by while reading your book was that the first half seems to be a lot of arguments in favor of the gold standard so for example you talk about how World War I was accelerated and in some ways, I think you would argue, caused by the fact that governments just started funding money to fund this endless war and that the gold standard was better. Can you just talk about when you started to think that perhaps Bitcoin was an alternative to gold or why it would be a better version of gold? Because it seemed to me at least that a lot of the arguments that you set out at the beginning were in favor of gold. Yeah, definitely, and I still, you know, I'm. Uh, I,
1: I definitely still understand and appreciate gold's monetary role, and I don't think that gold has uh, lost its monetary role, uh, even with uh, fiat money and even with Bitcoin. I think uh, gold still has legs to run; it will continue to be used as a store of value. Two ways to understand gold's monetary role is first of all to understand that a lot of the uh, transactions that take place in gold are embedded into people's cultures. So in China and in India and in Islamic countries, it's part of marriages that gold needs to be gifted because it's something that's, whose value has survived the test of time for quite a long time. However, you know, the, for me, the interest in Bitcoin from day one was that, look, this is a digital way of creating gold. This is the first way in which I came across the idea that this is just another form of what makes gold good money but done digitally. And I think that was really the uh, impetus for Nakamoto's uh, design of uh, Bitcoin. He made it so that it would be a digital form of gold. You know, initially, of course, I was extremely skeptical of replacing gold until I really started to understand the value proposition around 2013, which is that, okay, gold does have the fact that it is physical, and it does have a 6,000-year head start, and it is far more dispersed In terms of the number of people around the world who hold it compared to Bitcoin, all of these are undeniable advantages in in some sense. But the advantage that Bitcoin has is arguably more important at this stage because the real threat to the monetary status of gold is the fact that its clearance has to be centralized. And then its clearance being centralized towards the end of the 19th century meant that governments could take over gold Processing and gold payments across the world, and turn it into a government-run system, and then eventually that uh, consolidated into one uh, government or one central bank, being practically um, the central bank of the world, which is the U.S. central bank. So, with gold, you know, moving a supply of gold from one country to the other is not something that can be done easily every day. You know, you. Have to wait until the end of the week or the month or the year and then settle and move a physical large quantity.
0: Particularly difficult during wars to move a bunch of gold.
1: Yes, particularly during wars, particularly, I mean, just even even in uh, peacetime, I mean, it's just, I mean, it it requires a lot of securing, uh, a lot of insurance costs. It's not easy, which necessitates the centralization of the clearance. It just means that if you are able to hold accounts for a lot of people, you're going to have an advantage over a network of small banks that clear by moving physical gold uh, amongst one another. So the economics of physical gold clearance tend towards centralization. We are going to tend towards a world of a few central banks and then inevitably uh, one central bank. The advantage that Bitcoin has is that at its most basic layer, its central banks, at this point, thousands of central banks, but could be up to possibly tens of thousands of institutions that are able to perform final clearance of payments across the world, and they are able to complete it in less than an hour. So it's much more secure than the physical movement of gold, and it can be completed in an hour. We know right now that Bitcoin can do half a million transactions a day. And these are, you know, final settlement transactions. These are transactions that clear with finality within an hour. After an hour, it's no longer anybody else's liability. So... Uh, You know, the equivalent to that is a gold transaction, which takes weeks or months to complete through being uh, shipped physically. So the centralization in the case of Bitcoin, no matter how centralized the process of payment uh, becomes, we'll still have at the final level something like a thousand or several thousand, hopefully, equivalents of central banks at the very least. And, you know, there are more optimistic scenarios where we could have many more entities being able to perform final clearance.
0: You wrote something in the book that that, uh, captured my imagination, which is you said that if you're writing a book about gold, you wouldn't feel need uh, to explain its chemical properties in order to explain gold. And I think the analogy carries out that perhaps not everyone needs to know about the deep inner workings of the Bitcoin system. But there's definitely a big part of the, the Bitcoin culture which suggests that people should hold their own keys People should understand the technical stuff. Do you think it's important in the long term for people to understand Bitcoin, for Bitcoin to succeed and for this Bitcoin standard to come into place? Or is it simply just like gold? Like you just see it and you go, hey, that's gold. Good enough for me.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I think uh, on some level, of course, it's definitely going to necessitate that people uh, rewire the part of the brain
0: that that handles
1: the issues of money and how money is uh, handled. I think it's definitely going to necessitate that people start taking their online security far more seriously. And this is a good thing about Bitcoin. And even, you know, it's, it's the silver lining of the whole ransomware episode. Bitcoin is making computer security a fungible, liquid market. And that's a good thing because as an economist, as an Austrian economist, I think markets are the best way of achieving good outcomes. It's not going to mean that bad people are going to be able to control all of your data. It's obviously far more productive um, to have a situation where people are able to be in charge of their data, and so the commodification of security is going to lead to more investment into it. And you know, I think the uh, the, the more productive use of resources is going to be the one that allows productive people to have computer security, so that they can work and be productive. So in the long run, I, I see this defeating the uh, the, the bad elements of computer security. So I think it's a, it, that's a good thing. So, yeah, people will learn more. People will have to adjust the new Bitcoin reality. But I would not say that it, that is necessary for Bitcoin to work. And in fact, you know, um, I'm not saying that's necessarily going to be the case. But, you know, I, I think Bitcoin's real value proposition in terms of it, of it as a hard money could absolutely change the world, and it could be a technology that would survive for another 1,000 years all over the world as a monetary standard, and maybe longer than that. For that to happen, you know, as as a as a hard money, it might not even necessitate anybody using Bitcoin as an individual. So, in other words, as as a hypothetical, I'm not saying I want that to happen. I'm not saying that my book explains that this is going to happen, but I'm just po- positing it as. The extreme counterfactual to just explain what I see as Bitcoin's value proposition, the hard money. What I'm trying to say is that imagine if all the central banks of the world today met and announced that they're going to get rid of all of the reserves that they have that are dollars or a government money or gold and just replace them all with Bitcoin. I'm not, obviously, that's not going to happen. Don't hold your breath. But if that does happen, you know we've got an entire gold standard equivalent or a Bitcoin standard that is running with bitcoins being transferred between the central banks of the world, and you and I, you know, all of the monetary media that we have to say it's the paper money, or the credit cards, or the bank accounts, or the checkbooks, all of that stuff is now instead of being denominated in your government's money is now denominated in bitcoin. So I think you know bitcoin could succeed even if that was the case, even if nobody's willing to learn about private keys and running nodes. With a few thousand nodes and a few thousand entities being able to exchange Bitcoin with one another, I think Bitcoin is powerful enough as a monetary standard that everybody would end up using it, even in that situation. However, of course, in reality, I think the reality is that Bitcoin is going to be far more distributed than that.
2: Oh, so, I Look, this is a question that Aaron and I talk about quite a bit, which is that like you lay out a pretty compelling vision of how this could go forward and what the future might look like. And the one thing that I keep tripping up on is the fact that, you know, the amount of the way that Bitcoin is distributed right now is that small numbers of people hold large, large amounts of Bitcoin and that I don't see them sort of relinquishing that percentage of what is a deflationary currency, which if Bitcoin then does become the standard of uh, all currency means that we have these sort of super rich, super wealthy almost like uh like demigods Feudal in the marks. economy like it, is that something that 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 concerns you as well uh, about bitcoin going forward the fact that like what you have is is not you have somebody who would be approximately like a thousand times wealthier than jeff bezos and you would have maybe like five to ten of them and that they would that they would inevitably have a large amount of power in the world
1: no i mean the thing is uh, I, i'm not entirely worried about this because uh I think if you've been in Bitcoin long enough and you've seen what happens to those people, um, I think people underestimate just how how much an increased, a uh, huge amount of money, can drive people crazy. And so you know you see them, uh, you see them starting their own shit coins and forks and stuff like that. And uh, uh, that's 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 a that's a way of just redistributing unearned wealth away from people who earned it without really. Uh,
0: Are we talking about Roger Fair right now? But I don't
2: <laughs> know, maybe. But you know, the... but like, but let's just say the Winklevoss twins, for example, right? Like, I, I don't. They are not a group that is starting like a bunch of other shit coins or or encouraging forks and slowly bleeding Bitcoin back into the economy. There's so much of what you write about that I find compelling personally, just because my own po- politics about individual sovereignty and and you know a, a new sense of freedom that could arise out of this. The part that I always get tripped up when we talk about Bitcoin philosophically, which is what interests me, is that I am not sure in the world in which like the Winklevoss twins essentially are a nation state upon themselves that that would lead to more individual freedoms. I mean, this must be something that you've thought about. And, you know, like people bleeding back Bitcoin through shit coins and through mistakes is one thing, but there still would be a concentration.
1: No, no. See, the thing is, I mean, I was, I, I was, I, I was. I mean, that was just sort of a a little uh, side point onto the main point. The real, the real issue that I find is that uh, Bitcoin gets rid of the real problem of inequality, which is that some people are able to create money while others have to work. I mean, this is really what makes any kind of inequality, um, and this is what makes inefficient unjust destructive uh, things continue to survive in this world It's the fact that they have a government printer jacked to them that allows this to happen in a world of hard money the only way to stay wealthy it doesn't matter how early you started holding bitcoins the only way to start to stay wealthy and influential with the money that you have is to be using your money and your capital in a way that is productive and so it doesn't matter how rich you get as the link of you know, you're going to want to buy stuff and you're going to need to spend money. And, you know, if if you're bothered by the fact that they have a lot of money, well, you know, spending that money is going to get rid of it or reduce the amount that they have. And so the only way that they're going to remain with a lot of money and a lot of influence is if they have that money actively working in the economy. They're actually being productive capitalists. And if they're doing that, you know, I don't care how rich they are. In fact, the richer they are, It's just an indication of how much they serve society. That's really, I think, what hard money economies differ from easy money economies. An easy money economy being rich almost always means that you have some sort of connection to the political uh, apparatus that controls the printing press. In a hard money economy, being rich means that you've been making people's lives better because the only way to get more money is that people are serving you.
2: So the example that you brought up in the book is that if you have a person who... Has a, two people who are fishing, and one person builds a fishing pole, and one person decides to fish by themselves. And the person who spent the time to build the fishing pole eventually will like build an economy around the ability that he's a bit able to pull out more fish, and that will serve more people, right? Like the for the problem that I, I guess the question that I want you to really address which is that like the Winklevoss twins like they didn't cre- they didn't create like a fishing economy, you know, they just use some of the money that they they had used from Facebook and made a speculative bet on bitcoin so like no no that's
1: i don't think that's accurate because bitcoin is 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 i mean it is an enormous capital investment that is if it succeeds it's going to be a foundational technology for humanity and it's going to succeed because people bought into it you have to understand that hodlers today are financing the growth and the security of the network, so it's not it's not a speculative bet. you're not betting on um, horse racing here. You're actually providing capital and you're sitting uh, waiting as it's being uh, worked in making mining uh, operational. It,
0: it strikes me when i when I read your book that if we truly move to a Bitcoin standard, the whole idea of nations will change. and perhaps the idea of people, identifying themselves nationally will change. What kinds of effects do you think that this kind of a shift will have on citizenship and how people perceive themselves around the globe?
1: I mean, I think our perception of the state and government and their role in society has been highly skewed over the last 100 years by the fact that uh, the major governments of the world have been issuing uh, money. And that just means that they are... uh, Able to direct the economies of their societies in uh, very uh, profound ways. You know, we have to distinguish between the fact that this direction and central planning uh, does not work at achieving its goals, and from the fact that it is quite effective at creating problems for people in terms of you know the the kind of impact that uh, government interventions in the market economy can create and the negative consequences that it has. So we've come to understand that government acts as an embodiment of a shared moral understanding between society, that the government decides what's right and what's wrong, government decides what it is okay to, what's okay to eat, drink, smoke, consume, who you can have sex with and how you can have sex, who you can trade with, how you can trade. You know, this has been extremely prevalent all over the world in the 20th century. And I don't think you can separate that from the fact that governments have these printing presses that make them, in principle, pliable to uh, being influenced by special interest groups or by, uh, um, you know, moral campaigners or uh, by people who want to enforce their agenda on everybody else. And so the conception of the state has become something quite uh, aggressive in the sense of, uh, if you think about the 19th century conception of the state, it was rather a negative Uh, conception of the rights that people have and the role of the government in protecting those rights. But in the 20th century, the role of the government went towards not just protecting you from others, but actively providing for you. So government is responsible for eliminating poverty, for ensuring employment, for uh, uh, managing the macroeconomy and making sure that we get good GDP growth. And all this stuff, you know, is only really possible. Because we have a printing press, and once governments don't really have a printing press, their activities will face the test of the market. A government that doesn't have a printing press is going to have to be far more efficient than one that does. You know, you could think of one that does as being like a spoiled teenager who has a very rich dad who gives them a credit card that allows them to just, you know, do whatever they want and fix whatever trouble they get into.
0: I was actually going to ask you about rich kids, because one of your analogies about a non-inflationary system is that people who act rationally within the system will accumulate wealth, say in the form of Bitcoin, and that that wealth will be passed across uh, generations, which is a virtuous thing. And I sort of like the idea, but as uh, someone who grew up um, amongst private school students with extremely rich parents... Isn't it kind of a liability uh, to do so? I didn't find those people to be the best arbiters of the world when I encountered them in high school.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's almost like the uh, the natural cycle of the generations that you see this, that uh, the generation that works hard um, has the right sort of morality and work ethic about them. But then the generations that are born into... Uh, uh, uh having a golden spoon in their mouth and they are not accustomed to the idea of production having to precede consumption because they've been consuming all their life and just thinking that's just how the world is
0: this is basically how monarchies fell right like monarchies you have one dud prince that's the end of the monarchy
1: yeah pretty much and i mean it's just really the struggle that uh, generations and families really need to face to be able to have each generation instill the same sort of discipline and uh, uh, morality into the next one and it's just the natural order of things that not many uh, dynasties succeed for long the, the the way to think about it is that in, in in a sound money economy you know these things sort of correct themselves so these people who you would find don't have a work ethic and inherit a lot inherit a lot of money they would squander it and the money would go towards people who are productive and that's just how things continue to uh, change. And it's it's, it's actually, uh, once you understand the long-term perspective, you get a much better feel of uh, the reality of income inequality. Income inequality is always real because, you know, you always have people earning more. But the way in which the inequality is fixed is that um, people earning more now aren't the ones who are going to be earning more in 5 or 20 or 50 or uh, 100 years their children. So these things are just always uh, changing and moving around uh, between people. But there will be all kinds of stupid uh, decisions and all kinds of uh, stupid people making stupid mistakes in terms of the financing of things. But stupid people who make stupid mistakes in a hard money society pay for these mistakes and lose the ability to make them more. So, I mean, the way that I see it is, of course, in terms of art. You know, there were a lot of bad artists 500 years ago, possibly, but we don't hear about them. And the ones that we hear about today are the ones that uh, were doing good work that survived and lasted and uh, proved the test of time.
0: You're against certain forms of modern art. I get the feeling that you don't particularly like most modern music. Is that correct? Without getting too personal.
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, uh, generally, I only listen to music by dead people.
0: So the part of that that I'm sort of surprised by is to me that modern art is the ultimate manifestation of a free market, which is people are choosing to speculate wildly in paintings that most people find no basic aesthetic uh, value in. And, And this is even true going back 500 years that, you know, during the Renaissance, people were speculating on art. It was a way to curry favor with uh, the Pope was to commission art and to deal in art. So I guess I wonder, do you really think that like things <laughs> were better or different than, and doesn't this in some ways reflect just a personal preference about art? Like, do you think that there's an essential change in how humans have gone about art
1: Yes, and I think it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, I'll tell you the sort of personal story behind this. Uh, growing, Please. Up, yeah, gr- growing up, yeah, growing up, kid, my grandfather used to always uh, listen to old classical Arabic music. Yeah. And uh, he would always make fun of all the modern pop crap music that was on TV and compare it to the old music of his generation and would always give shit to, you know, people, my generation and my parents' generation about how their music is crap and,
0: my grandfather was the exact same way exactly
1: and in my case you know i grew up just always having this in the back of my mind and as a result of it i only listen to old classical arabic music now so all of the arabic musicians as i know that, that i like that i listen to are all dead and i'm listening to music from the 30s 40s 50s 60s up until the 70s really that's really all i listen to and you know, the, the, he, he, would, he would just illustrate the differences in terms of music in a way that has stuck with me even as a young kid. And it's still, I think, very true, which is back then, you know, the, the musician, for instance, I urge people to check this out. My favorite musician in the world. Her name is Um Kulthoon, U-M and then K U L. T-H-U-M. She's absolutely phenomenal. She's an Egyptian singer who...
0: Uh, I'll, put a, I'll put a link in the yeah, show notes. She's,
1: she's astonishing. She's an Egyptian singer who was like the biggest superstar in the Arab world from the 30s until the 70s. I could go on for hours talking about it. But I mean, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is that her songs were, would take, say, half an hour or an hour or two hours to complete each song. And the the amount of people that went into producing the song, the time it took to make the song it was it was truly a work of art. I mean, people worked for years on these songs, and then you had an orchestra of twelve people who had practiced really really well together, and it was all done so meticulously. And you know, it, it, you still enjoy the the, the amazing um, music that they produced even after so many years, when the recording was, the recording equipment was nowhere near as good as we have today. It still shines through. And you compare it to the kind of music that we listen to today in the Arab world or in the West, it's the same thing. You know, it's three minute little bites of just, you know, lust and animalistic instincts, and, you know, inserted into this inter- three minute bites. And, you know, you like think about the production process that goes into them. I mean, there are, it, it can almost be replicated by machine. That's just how little thought or art goes into it or time, I, you know, or craft.
0: I, I see it in a totally different way because, well, I love a lot of music that's come out in the modern era in the Arab world, but I guess I would say that those art forms are sort of modeled on the culture of their time. So let's say uh, in the Renaissance, you're going to hear, you know, you're going to hear the the early operas. That is the format of the time. Um, Now we live in the era of Bitcoin and the smartphone, and it makes sense that music is more compressed and it's more of a quick hit. It seems to me like what has changed is not the art, but the way that people are digesting it. It it seems to me like a three-minute pop song is actually, in some ways, the culmination of all these years of musical history, not the repudiation. But, of course, I wouldn't think that if I didn't like modern pop music. So, there you go.
1: Yeah, but I mean, you know, I think a good way of looking at the difference uh, in order to say, you know, this is why I think there comes a point where we can't just say it's a matter of taste. Because, you know... (laughs) The, the the amount of time and effort that it took for the musician to produce a song, the amount of time and effort and craft it took for Mozart to compose a symphony, cannot, a symphony cannot possibly be compared to what one of the modern pop artists uh, have done. You know, I mean, at this point, it's, uh, if, if you look a little uh, sexy and you have a good stage presence, then, you know, there's, 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 uh, there's there are staples of people sitting there writing stupid lyrics for songs, and people auto-generating tools of the same beat. And then, you know, they'll just match one with the other and you one, and there you go, there's your album.
0: I agree the thing you're describing exists, but I don't think it invalidates the human artistic project that there's a lot of crap art. Like, there is good art that's come out in the last 25 years, in my opinion. In some ways, it feels to me like you're describing like a shit coin and, <laughs> and saying, like... See it's like that it's like bitcoin I'm like no no it, it is not they have superficial similarities they're both four minute songs but w- w- the whole spectrum is possible within that and i want to ask you actually about that that's a good transition since i won't i don't want to argue with you about art forever in terms of like altcoins you write about in, in the book about the merkle tree and you're like look the merkle tree extends forever it's a living organism as long as one or two people run bitcoin it continues To exist, and I think that's a compelling idea, and it makes me understand why maybe in altcoins are less necessary. But I grew up. I think we're like around the same age. I don't know. I grew up in like I was a teenager in the '90s. I was like an early on computers, you know, DOS computing. Yeah, and my the whole history of my computer use has been about software dying, and I can't believe how quickly. If you told me people won't be running DOS. And tam- I'd be like, what? That's crazy. DOS is great. Yeah. Languages that have come and goes, file formats that have come and go. Everything is this massive, this entropy with a really short half life. And so I'm wondering, as someone who's lived through the same period of time, there's a certain outlook, I guess it's the MySpace outlook, that everything about technology is about to be replaced. Why is this not true of Bitcoin?
1: Well, I mean, generally it's just very dangerous to reason from analogy. I think my my rule is that, you know, I'm I'm okay with using analogies as a way to explain something, but I would never use an analogy as a way to reason because particularly because of shit coins. I mean, I've just been bombarded (laughs) over the last three years with all the most creative kinds of bullshit analogies come up with for why. This one particular brand of new shitcoin is the one that's actually going to be the one that you know, does something. Uh, you can make an analogy from something to anything. And uh, there is no alternative to just using your mind and thinking about things from just what they are, what you know about them, how they function, and then what the likelihood of things like them being replaced are. So in the case of Bitcoin, mm-hmm. Bitcoin is just uh, it's a protocol for moving value around. So it helps move value around. Now, value is economic value is something that's subjective. It doesn't have any physical properties. And so the way that Bitcoin does it is that it burns electricity and produces, if you want, digital cans that are full of economic value produced from burning that electricity. And it makes, you know, the currently the price of producing is around the price of one Bitcoin. I mean, obviously it varies. It goes above and below, depending on the difficulty and depending on the price and depending on the cost of the mining equipment and so on. Yes. And so by putting this digital value in these cans, then we are able to have this network that allows us to send value over the internet without having to trust a single trusted third party. I mean, this is really what it is as a technology. Now, once you have produced that, there's really no point in the first place from producing any from using any other kind of uh, value network. You know, you want the value to be fungible, and it makes more sense to have one network of value. Uh, It's just the issue of liquidity of money. The more liquid the market for money, the more useful money is money is money because of its liquidity. That's why in a free market, we ended up in the whole world using gold as money. And the only reason the whole world doesn't use gold as money anymore is because of governments forcing people to use other kinds of money. So, you know, the natural uh, scenario is if Bitcoin was developed, okay we've developed this protocol for moving value around the next step happens is you know th- there are no in in my opinion there are no improvements that can be achieved onto bitcoin uh, just by simply having a, a slight little improvement in terms of you know doubling the capacity or, or increasing blocks uh, or decreasing block
0: time. Making it anonymous, say, would be like some some people think that's a, a hugely important feature that needs to be added.
1: Yeah, I yes, even that one. I mean, I don't really see. I, I think the whole notion of making blockchains anonymous, I find it to be just it's, it's a very bad way to engineer anonymity. A blockchain with a shared record between everyone is just always going to be not useful for this sort of thing. But the point is. This thing works for exchanging value as it is. Um, it's as, as anonymous as you can make it, and you can always make it anonymous if you want it, and you can always track down people if you want to. But it depends on how good you look, how good they hide. The, this is the problem I have with the anonymity meme that uh, some shit coins peddle. Is this idea that you know anonymity is just this app that we're going to install, and it's just infuriating because. <laughs> It's, it's not a freaking cloak that you just dress your laptop with and then nobody will be able to tell it's you. Look, it's 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 an ever-ending security problem, and it depends on who's looking, how they're looking, and what they have on you, and how they can compromise your hardware or software. So the notion that we can develop a blockchain that comes with anonymity pre-installed, I think, is just fictional. You know, it's it's always going to just be up to you. You can always make it anonymous if you're good enough and you can always track down somebody if you're good enough. It, that's just inescapable. That's, I think, an engineering reality. And I think the meme for privacy coins is just yet another example of uh, another useful way of to market uh, okay. shit coins.
0: Let me push back, though. I sort of agree with you about the current generation of shit coins or mid-shit coins. And I would say... Nothing has convinced me that Bitcoin is anything less than primal, you know, a, a, the the thing to beat. But haven't we created a market by putting so much value into Bitcoin? We've created a market where, if somehow someone did beat Bitcoin, it would be massively valuable. So, as a person who believes in open markets, don't you think that that market will, at, at some point, someone the market will find enough value? Maybe it's not now. Maybe it's when are a hundred times bigger that it will become worth it to create something better. Won't people keep trying, I guess, to make the new gold? I mean,
1: yes, go ahead. <laughs> might guess. I mean, I've, look, I'm not trying to pass laws against shit coins. I don't want to have this up in jail. I just fully understand that the value proposition behind Bitcoin is something that none of the shit coins will ever be able to replicate. Right. Because the simple reason that the, only way that you and I, or anybody in the world, has ever heard of a shitcoin, other than the people who made that shit coin is if the people who made it actually put in effort into promoting it. So, you know, in the sea of thousands of altcoins everywhere, you know, why do you know about this one particular one versus the other one? Well, because this one bought, um, you know, news articles in Coindesk and in Forbes or in uh, Fortune Magazine or God knows where. Uh, They paid influences on social media. They uh, managed to do something or the other.
0: They gave people a discount on something that had no value to begin with. Something. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But yeah, there was somebody out there doing a promotion for it. And that somebody is not doing that promotion for it for its own sake. You know, because this is really the point. If you really are into this for innovation, if you have something interesting to be building, you know, you will have recognized that okay, Bitcoin has already built this thing and it works. Let's build on it. Let's see how we can add solutions for anonymity that people can employ and utilize Bitcoin with more anonymity. So let's build tumblers or uh, uh, any kind of sort of services or things like that. The fact that you know of all of the engineering problems that one could identify about Bitcoin that need developers to be working on. The fact that the only one that you could identify necessitated building an exact replica currency
0: of Bitcoin that is going to have to compete with Bitcoin
1: just shows that, you know, the motivation behind it has to be the Uh,
0: Taleb, who wrote the introduction to your book, said something that I've thought a lot about since. He said that Bitcoin has reached a sufficient state of maturity now that even if something happens and Bitcoin ceases to exist, we know how to make it. We'll be able to remake it. It, it can't be wiped from the face of the earth. So in some ways, that it's the idea that's Bitcoin, not necessarily this original chain that exists right now.
1: The way that I see it is that I don't think we're going to get another chance at building another digital currency like Bitcoin. Interesting, because because at this point, you know, look, if 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 enough people who know about Bitcoin today, enough of them knew what it was going to become in two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, it would have been trivial for uh, people to get a bunch of computer servers together and stick some uh, significant hashing power on just continuing to fuck with the network and double spending transactions and um, just making the experiment fail so that it wouldn't catch on. And I think that might have been quite effective back then. So it's trivial to kill one of these uh, projects when they're young. And it's not possible to get them to grow on their own spontaneously. They have to have some sort of central direction behind them in order to protect them while they're young, or otherwise, you know, it's trivial to, to to attack them or to speculate against them and so on. So there's no such thing as a spontaneous or organic uh, altcoin. You know, the, the, no altcoins have grown spontaneously. And if you think about all the altcoins, you know, it's, tri- it's, it's almost trivial to identify uh, several people who are critical for it to continue to operate
0: right they're centralized by their own founders or their own leaders exactly
1: right. they they control the mining hash rate and the code and a lot of the coin supply and it's just one big giant conflict of interest for this thing to ever grow beyond little speculative use
0: you're in an interesting position because you're a bitcoin believer but you're an altcoin skeptic which in some ways makes your views similar to certain no coiners uh, at least about the scammer end, let's say, of the ICO uh, spectrum, all the way up to the sort of Ethereum-level stuff, as an economist, why do you think Bitcoin and crypto in general has just, um, like, people like Rubini, who you brought up, they almost seem more obsessed with it than the people who are believers. Like, the critics are just as passionate, if not more passionate. Tell me, like, what it's like, like, being an economist in this crypto world. And where do you think the no coining viewpoint comes from?
1: Well, the no coining viewpoint comes from fundamentally the uh, cognitive dissonance that happens to the economists when they see a free market monetary good emerge without mm. government control. And so, according to everything you get taught in uh, graduate school in economics, if it wasn't for the central bankers every morning waking up and hiding up the money supply and making sure it's at the right range, you know, <laughs> the, the, the rain would stop falling and the sun would, the sun would stop rising and the, oh, there'd be no more days and nights and the seasons would stop turning and all of life would freeze. But fortunately, you know, we've got, developed this wonderful technology where central bankers allow our economy to function through their inimitable wisdom of centrally planning the supply of money and the interest rates uh, in the economy so it should not be possible for something to have a monetary role uh, for something to be used as money and so they you know they saw like me you know i i saw bitcoin begin this pretentiousness of it at a very early stage and i thought you know that's cute a bunch of nerds are playing digital alchemy but this isn't going to go anywhere you know the world has had hundreds and thousands of years of uh, people showing up and saying i've figured out a, a a way to make gold for free or a way to make something that's better than gold you know, all the way down to John Maynard Keynes, it's, uh, just one scam artist after the other, coming up with their own shitcoin that is better than gold. And gold has seen them all, has buried them all, and is still sitting there. So this is really the skepticism from which I came from, and I can imagine why gold bugs would think like this. But you know, imagine from the perspective of uh, Keynes and economists, and economists who are uh, uh, pro-Federal Reserve or employed by the Federal Reserve, you have this cognitive dissonance because this thing is not supposed to exist, and it's not supposed to have any value. Because why would anybody be buying this stuff when, when it's not government-approved money? You can't pay your taxes with it, so why would you want it? And so this is why they like to dismiss it as if it's speculation. But, you know, newsflash, everything is speculation. Holding your government money is also speculation. Stocks and gold and everything is a form of speculation. Bitcoin is a speculative asset, and anything else is a speculative asset. Um, there's a chance that it might go up or that it might go down. Um, so they witness it working, and it pisses them off. And so the problem is, you know, I think the, the issue is that their egos become invested in the idea. You know, they keep hearing about it, and then they just make a claim that this thing is going to die. And I've had this happen with several people that I know. And eventually it just gets ugly because uh, you know their egos become invested in the idea that bitcoin must die and that just makes it impossible for you to have any kind of normal interpersonal relationship with them because when they see you all they can think of is oh this is bitcoin i need to explain to you this is a bitcoin guy i need to explain to you why bitcoin is stupid and why bitcoin is going to die and you know the, the...
0: and that's the end of the friendship yeah
1: pretty much yeah i mean it becomes It becomes kind of hard to stay friends with people who just want to hurl uh, views at why uh, what you think is interesting is just completely unworkable and stupid. And uh, for me, being open-minded means being able to accept that other people have different opinions. Being open-minded does not mean wasting your life shouting at people who disagree with you and hoping to get them to change. People people lie to themselves and think that, that we're arguing because I'm trying to be open-minded and getting exposed to new perspectives. No, you're arguing because you're um, stroking your own ego on your self-righteousness of your own position and trying to appeal to people who already agree with you uh, and show them how much of a believer you are in your ideas. So for me, I, do, I don't really like to argue much. I prefer to just let events do the talking. And uh, you know, I'm happy to accept the idea that people disagree with me and I'm happy to let time uh, be the judge. It's fine. I'm willing to put things beside and move on. But I think a lot of the no-coiners, they get emotionally invested in it because they're, you have to understand that for economists, you know, their whole world fundamentally relies around this entire industry of the modern economist as the philosopher king is dependent on the notion of uh, the central bank being out there financing all of this enormous industry of um, um academic research uh, which employs a lot of economists so you know you put all that uh, you put that out of business by replacing it all with an algorithm you're going to make the, these people angry
0: that that brings me i'll, I'll ask you my final question which you, you uh, mm-hmm. uh naturally segue to perfectly as someone who is not personally like an austrian school libertarians it's just it's mm-hmm. not how i it's it's not how i see the world i think it's fascinating like Bitcoin has actually been great for me because it's allowed me to see the world through this different prism that doesn't come naturally to me. But I always want to believe that there is some way that these systems can uh, harmoniously coexist. And when I read your book, which I found very convincing, it felt like central planning and Bitcoin standard are in a fight to the death and there can, there can be no in-between. One of them has to ultimately destroy the other. Is, is that your view? Like, do you, is, there any, is there any way for us to go to a partially uh, deflationary system, or is this like something that has to come to a head and has to get resolved?
1: Uh, well, I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, Mises, about 100 years ago, Mises wrote that uh, social democracy and the interventionist state unstable uh, arrangement. It will have to devolve eventually into becoming full socialism. And the reason is that government intervention, once people are, he wrote, he wrote about this concept of intervention, once people have in their mind the idea that X is wrong, therefore it follows that government must do something to fix X. Once that virus infects people's minds, it's going to be what, what, what Nassim Taleb called iatrogenics. You know, government tries to do something to make X better, but it ends up making X worse. And then when X is worse, you know, that if people are already infected with, diet, with the virus of uh, interventionism, they're going to say, oh, now X is worse. So we need government to do something even more. So then government needs to do something about Y and Z and A and B and C and all sorts of things. And it's just it's a slippery slope that, be, that the failures of interventionism will justify more and more interventionism and lead to more and more. However, you know, Mises wrote that Mises wrote that about 100 years ago, and we've coexisted between these kinds of different uh, degrees of free markets and uh, central planning for the last 100 years all over the world, oscillating back and forth in different institutions and different sectors of the economy. So there's no reason why it can't go on for another another 1,000 or so. But uh, I think the interesting thing about Bitcoin is that it's it offers. I mean, it's it's really not very optional like you don't you 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 don't like austrian economics you don't have to ever read austrian economics you're going to want to use bitcoin because it's in yourself interest to use it and so you know people like you i think are going to be the majority that's how
0: that's how i feel people have asked me if you don't believe in this stuff why are you buying bitcoin i was like well i don't want to be poor after the free market takes it like i still would act within self-interest if this was the tsunami i saw coming even if i don't necessarily wanted yeah
1: to, um, so and i think this is really the economic force that i talk about in my book and it could take a while and it could be another couple of hundred years until bitcoin really uh, succeeds economically um, and, and becomes this uh, entire global standard i you know i'm not i'm not making any promises in my book and i'm not trying to promote bitcoin and i'm not trying to get people to buy bitcoin so you know the, the possibility of failure or, or of it taking a very long time are, are definitely there, and I urge mean, everybody to be careful uh, towards that. But yeah, the way that I see it is that uh, people are just anybody who's productive, who produces something that's valuable, is going to naturally tend to want to store that value into more into Bitcoin, more and more and more into the future, and that's just going to mean that uh, the people who are not productive, who whose economic activities rely on subsidy through creation of money are effectively going to have less and less value available for them. So that's going to lead us to this world where, you know, central planning is just going to have to be curtailed massively just because without a money printer, either your central planning actually works in the test of the market or you run out of people willing to finance you one way or the other. It doesn't matter how many kings and armies you have behind you. Eventually, if you keep trying to invest in something that's stupid and that doesn't give good returns, it's going to backfire and it's going to be negative. And I think, I think uh, that's, that's really the promise here, that Bitcoin is going to put the entire world on <laughs> a highly, highly, highly uh, tight economic uh, leash, basically, where you know nobody can print Bitcoins anywhere. And the only way to make it is to be productive. So everybody has to be productive. And anything that's not productive is immediately found out to be a waste. And people therefore direct their energies towards things that are productive. And I think the real interesting thing about Bitcoin is to imagine that a world in which nobody is able to remain unproductive. Think about all the industries that exist just because they're supporting, uh, they're supported through low interest rates and through government spending. You know, if all these industries would instead use all of their capital towards things that are productive and valuable. So others I think we'd a different world, and I'd love to see what that world looks like.
0: It sounds like a fascinating but brutal future. Like, I want to see the movie. I'm not totally sure if I want to live it. Maybe, like, I, I like your, like, in the next Too couple of years.
1: Wrap on, because we're heading down there. There's no movies <laughs> where we're going. This is reality. It's all <laughs> you've got. Uh,
0: thank you so much for this interview. It was great.
1: No problem. My pleasure.
0: Where um, where can people who want to find you on Twitter and read your writing find you? My Twitter
1: is Uh, uh It's my first name, S-A-I-F-E-D-E-A-N. Uh, I've also got a website which with a link to my blog and to my academic papers. It's uh, Saifedean.com. Also the first name, Dean. And uh, check out my book, The Bitcoin Standard. It's uh, available on Amazon. And
0: Pick up the book listen to this episode listen to the other couple episodes we've done on the book and uh thank you so much safe
1: no problem aaron have a good day this episode of coin talk was taped tuesday june 26th at 1 p.m eastern standard time the bitcoin price index was 6038 dollars
0: this was Coin Talk. I'm Aaron Lammer. My co-host is Jay Kang. Thanks very much to Safedine Amos for coming on the show and uh, writing this great book. Uh, which I thank you all for reading along with us. Thanks to our editor James Nicholson. Thanks to all our friends over at Medium. You can find all of our episodes, including transcripts, at medium.com/coin talk. You can also send us an email: hi at coin Hey, Hey. Send us some suggestions for uh, what we should do next on the book club. All right, see you next week.